I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. All right, welcome everyone. This is uh, today's Strategic Farming Field Notes program, and we're glad you could join us this morning. The latest risks regarding the management of IDC, or iron deficiency chlorosis, is the focus of today's program. We're going to look a little bit about what's going on with our soybeans and the general health of those today. So these sessions are brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension, as well as generous support from the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, as well as the Corn Growers Research and Promotion Council. I'm Anthony Hansen, Regional Extension Educator in Crops and Integrated Pest Management. And we also have Angie Peltier, Extension Educator in Northwestern Minnesota. And today we're gonna team up to talk to, uh, hopefully two folks right now, we have Seth Navon, he is with the uh, um, University of Minnesota Department of Agronomy, a professor and extension agronomist there. And then we will hopefully have Dan Kaiser on later. He's an associate professor with Department of Soil, Water and Climate. And both these folks are going to be looking a little bit at what goes on with iron deficiency chlorosis. And with that, I think I'll turn it over to you, Angie. Thank you, Anthony, and welcome to everybody that's tuned in to um, participate in this webinar today. Um, first, I would like to um, again introduce Dr. Daniel Kaiser. He is um, a professor that um, works on soil fertility issues. And um, Dan, would you mind turning on your camera and um, getting ready for a question. So um, just to, to lay, lay the uh, foundation here, um, please, if you wouldn't mind, take a few minutes to remind us all of the soil characteristics that, that really um, favor iron deficiency chlorosis or IDC in, in our soybean fields. Well, the majority of the issues, if you look at it, I mean, soils prone to it are either going to be one of two things, higher in carbonates or higher in salts. I mean, that tends to be kind of what we see in the Red River Valley, even though a lot of those soils were formed on carbonates, they don't always have as much near the soil surface, but they tend to still yellow up in the, the when we start getting into this, particularly this time frame, June, when we have um, conditions favorable for IDC. The, the interesting thing when you look at IDC is the fact that it isn't necessarily that those soils are always going to get IDC. I mean, environmental factors really play in a lot to what's going on um, because a lot of the issues isn't as much we start talking about carbonates as it is uh, bicarbonate, which is something that's formed in the soil when uh, carbon dioxide is trapped in the soil, particularly when we have waterlogged soils, it tend to be what we see in West Central or uh, you know, Southwest Minnesota areas that have high lime, there's really, it's a bicarbonate issue more than anything. Bicarbonate isn't stable. So when you get to aeration, it's gonna break down form uh, carbon dioxide and it's gonna leave. So that's again why at times we see IDC, but we don't always see it. Uh, so 
one of the things with it, we can't measure bicarbonate um, in the soil. So in the end, it's um, not something we necessarily can track. We just have to know where soils are prone to it and then kind of manage accordingly. Uh, one thing going into this year, um, I think that favored a lot of our issues is um, nitrate. Um, there is a linkage, you know, Seth can talk a little bit about that between um, high nitrate and um, IDC. Uh, and there was a lot of work by John Weirsma, I know, up in the northwest part of the state where they were inducing iron chlorosis or making it worse by adding uh, nitrogen to the soil. Uh, because we know there's a link within the plant and then also as, as the plant's taking up iron, that nitrate can cause some problems. So I'm not going to get into the weeds of that, um, but we knew kind of going into this year with some of the residual nitrates that were out there that there may be a, an increased risk in some of the fields, particularly up in the Red River Valley. Um, where drought conditions, uh, you're following wheat or corn or something that uh, may not have utilized all the nitrogen. If that was hanging around this year, there would be some risks. So I said, it's an interesting issue because it, again, we know where the kind of things are prone. It's not necessarily just a high pH issue. There's got to be other factors that are in play, but um, you know, environmental factors really are kind of the triggering point where we see a lot of these issues. Seth, did you have anything to add on that? Um that uh, sort of topic about the nitrate this year or carbonates or any other soil related issues that that um, influence IDC development? No, I, I think Dan covered it really well. I think the only, you know, the, the, everything I have is kind of anecdotal. And, and so mm -hmm. I don't know that there's, there's any science that I can add to it, except, you know, the, the story that I kind of appreciate from the Valley is, is when I started working on IDC 15 years ago, uh, we talked a lot about rotations and soybeans following beets was a little bit of a new phenomena, but people found that soybeans following beets did a lot better. So we really thought this was all about water uh, early in the year and that the, the beets had really drawn out a lot of that um, excess water out of, out of the, the profile or we had better water infiltration and that still could be, but you know, it, it's, it's quite likely too, that we just have less nitrogen carryover after, after our, our beads. So I think as farmers start looking at some of these spots that show up erratically, uh, they should be thinking about what they had last year and whether those areas were, you know, flooded out, or maybe they, maybe they actually lost nitrogen in some of those areas that, that greened up this year or, um, if so, looking at it a little bit differently through that nitrogen lens, um, I think can help explain some of the things going on. But also, I look at this a lot by water and where water's moving in the profile and, and water's moving salts and, and, um, and nitrates around up and down through the soil profile. And I think especially early in the season, we, it's, it, we have to remember that the soybean plants really utilizing a very small part of the soil profile early on. Now we're developing a decent root going down, um, but where both, both the location of that root is gonna affect IDC, um, but also um, its access to iron um, and, and moving down through the soil profile. So, um, you know, I think, I think this whole interaction between bicarbonates, Calcium carbonates, bicarbonates, nitrates, uh, salts, and water. Um, all together, that's probably explaining this, but there's a there's a lot of things going into those few few factors. Seth, to add a, another complicating factor there, um, now at least for parts of the state, June has been 
uh, one of the driest months, even drier than last year. So when we talk about water, how does that interaction possibly come into play? Or is there uh, much to talk about, at least in the month of June, that might have been developing for IDC related to how dry it's been? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, and I don't know specifically, um, you know, sometimes we get, and, and that's why I think it depends on where we're, we're at in that soil profile, where, where our, our salts have moved, um, where, where that nitrogen is sitting. Um, and, and sometimes we're kind of chasing things around with the soil profile. I think a lot of times when we get into this time of year and we get that really hot, dry weather, we tend to push through IDC pretty well. And it, it could be that we're just, we're just forcing a root down into the soil profile deeper that it has, has access to um, um, available uh, iron in the soil down deeper, uh, but it also could be related to these other factors as well. So I don't, I don't have a good answer for you. Maybe, maybe Dan can help you. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I said, just looking at the, the differences across the state, I mean, normally we'd say, okay, well, flooded soils are going to be our issues, but typically we get up to the valley, that isn't always the case. And you'll end up with uh, particularly all your, your whole fields going yellow compared to just the rims around some of the potholes in the southern part of the state. So I guess Yellow Medicine County, too, I've come across that, too, where we get um, some fields going completely yellow. So it isn't necessarily, there's just that it's it's just a waterlogged situation it's it's a complicated issue and that's really the problem I mean, i think a lot of the issues the valley probably boil down to nitrate um, because you tend to see a little bit more residual nitrate carried over from one year to the next and then in interacting with um some of the salts because again you look at some of those soils while there is carbonates in there i mean it isn't necessarily 100 percent a carbonate issue but as seth is saying the roots growing down i mean they're going to encounter carbonate layers you're going to see that deeper in the profile even if it's not at the, the the top six inches so it's one of those things that we just know we got to manage for and what's the best way to manage for it is is, is really the key and trying to figure out how to do that and um you look at you know planting a tolerant variety is usually our suggestion although it's not a perfect scenario um you can see you know some issues with that as well but um that's kind of been number one and then looking at some of these other practices the the inferochelates um if it's an eddha uh, ortho ortho chelate um it's going to be effective there's some other ones out there um just you look at some of the work that jay goose has done up in ndsu i mean you look at kind of the effectiveness of it and i guess george ream you know before me did a lot of work looking at some of these these chelates and really getting the right one is is critical and there's there's a lot of options out there um at one point, uh, soy green was kind of the go-to, although there's some other ones out there. I mean, the, the, the key with a lot of these, though, is that that correct chelate source, because that's why I think the rates and some of these go up and down, because the ortho-ortho percentage of whatever is chelated um, does change on some of these. Um, but that's critical because we know that that chelate um, has better stability at higher pHs, and that's really the issue with a lot of these, these iron um, products is the stability um, the way they release the iron if it's too quick um, it can't keep it around in the iron two form it's gonna essentially be worthless once it hits the soil so that's been kind of the issue with a lot of that and at this time of year I mean unfortunately we start seeing fields go yellow I mean yeah you could go out and spray on some foliar uh, chelates the ortho ortho uh, I mean we'd green it up but I think it's largely going to be cosmetic 
at this point um, because you have to remember that iron in the plant is is not mobile uh, so it might green up the tissue that it hits but it might still grow out what new new uh, vegetative growth might be still be yellow with it so that's kind of the challenge of this i mean it's something that really needs to be taken care of at the initial stages of um planning um, is we found that it's more effective uh, concentrating some of these chelate sources near the near the root where the, the plant can continually feed off them. So that's been kind of the, the, the big thing. And I know that's what Seth's been working on a little bit, looking at, um, you know, different placement options, some different methods for treating this. Um, but number one is still um, a tolerant variety. And then start looking at some of these other practices, which can get pretty expensive because uh, a, a lot of these products, they, they aren't free. So they do come with a cost. Yeah, I'll just jump in really quick. And, and you know, we do have study, um, Minnesota Soybean Growers are um, the Research Promotion Council's funding a project. I've got a graduate student that's working on this project right now, second year. And we're looking at the questions that Dan just, just raised, uh, varieties, iron chelates. And then we're also looking at populations, too, because we've seen a lot of farmers really pull back on populations. So I guess the big picture for me is farmers really have to know what they have to look very carefully at risk, from a risk management standpoint, um, because that's the question I always get from farmers is they say, well, we have IDC, we know these, these fields have IDC, but it's not everywhere in the field and it's not every year. So we hate to spend the money of putting a good iron chelate down on every acre every year. So then I just really emphasize to farmers, they really have to have good notes, um, good uh, look at their yield maps and, and have a good idea where they were hit by IDC and, and, and how much yield loss they had over time so that they can pencil it out because iron chelates really, really do work and varieties do work. Populations help a little bit, um, but they all have some cost to a farmer. And so we have to um, they just have to really have a good handle on what their losses are, but it is something that it's, it's really one of the best applications for a variable rate system. Farmers can turn on and off an iron chelate with a switch. They don't have to have a really high tech, um, variable rate system. As long as they know where those spots are, they can, they can manage either rates or, or, um, or just switching on and off fairly easily. And that's another way they can test these things too. They could very easily leave strips. And so that's one of the beauties of IDC is that we have a visual symptom that is pretty well correlated with yield. And so farmers can do some strip testing and, and look at these things in the field and get a very good, this time of year, they have a pretty good idea how those varieties are doing or how their iron chelates are doing or how populations are doing for them that will translate uh, to yield pretty well. So it's, it's, it is something that we could do some uh, on-farm testing with at, at a pretty, with, with, with low um, cost to the farmer. So um, one question, and then we can get to some of our audience questions. Um, I've always been curious at what point during the soybean um, life cycle can one look at a variety, for example, and, and see, okay, indeed, my, my crop has pretty severe IDC and know that that's going to translate into uh, a loss of, of overall yield potential. Is there a, a time to be looking at that? Or is it, if you see it, you've already lost, lost uh, some yield potential? That's one of the things that my students looking at, we're doing 
weekly drone imagery. And so we're trying to look at this question about recovery because uh, actually varieties do recover at different rates and we see different kinds of recovery, you know, of course, by by the location. So that's another issue for us. So it's it's a little bit hard. We can't say go out on June 1st and if you have an NDVI value or if you have a canopy closure level of X that you're gonna have uh, X amount of, or Y amount of, of yield loss. On the other hand, I will say as a soybean physiology guy, I would say that basically anytime we lose growth um, that we're losing yield potential at this time. So. Anytime we don't have, aren't fully producing a canopy, as in the green part of the field, we have yield loss relative to that. So it's, there's, we're, anytime we're not capturing as the maximum amount of light, um, anytime we have some yellow leaf material or we're not closing the rows uh, by a number of days, those are, that's yield loss for us relative to the other condition so it, it is something we can you can i think farmers can do a gut check on this pretty well and probably have a pretty good handle on it without us getting too um techie on on, on that side okay um a question from our audience here is um would a rye cover crop help to absorb the nitrates and lessen idc now seth i know that you've done some work looking at um spring oats along with planted along with with soybean um and i know that we currently this year up in um west central minnesota and then the um crookston area are, are looking at idc and um and uh cereal rye as a cover crop planted last year but have have you done any work looking at rye as a cover crop for um idc yeah, I'll just be really quick. We we have not. We did, as you mentioned, we did a companion crop study. I did that with George Ream several years ago. So we we planted soy um, oats with the soybeans. So it does help uh, to have that companion with the the crop. But um, as soon as we sprayed out the oats with the Roundup, the first pass of Roundup, then the the soybeans went back to the same yellow color that the other soybeans were. So we didn't really get anywhere forward. But I think having something out there earlier um, uh, definitely has a lot more potential. So maybe Dan has a little more experience with that. Well, and we've done it um, and it's, I've had a couple sites where, and I've seen some data where it's actually increased yield. Uh, so the, the main thing with it is um, when we've done oat, has been making sure we terminate it at the right time, um, not letting it go beyond about 10 inches uh, because that's gonna be the same issue with rye since rye is, you know, pretty effective at taking nitrate, but also water out of the profile. You let it go too long. Essentially, if you're in a situation or, well, well be it probably not this year, well, there's a lot of water around in the spring, uh, it can compete with your soybean crops. So that's kind of the main thing that I think there could be some advantage with that, but you've got to have the termination time down uh, where you're not getting excessive amounts of growth. And Again, the recommendation for oat, just based on some of the, the stuff that George did, um, was about 10 inch uh, termination around that. And, you know, I had some fields that, in some of the studies that we were doing, it's been probably, you know, six, seven, eight years ago that we got close to heading and um, it yield went down. So that's kind of one of the things. There's a balance there. While it's effective, um, you've got to balance it without making that. Um, 
companion or that uh, preceding cover crop turn into more of a weed for that where you have an issue with the um, either um, growth or, or germination um, early in the growing season from the soybean crop. But it is effective. I mean, we know that it does take a fair amount of nitrogen out and, and also it, it can impact uh, some of the water that's in the soil that might potentially help with uh, drying the soil and reducing IDC. Thanks. Um, we, we had another question here where somebody asks, are there any solutions that would last more than one year for IDC? I get a lot of questions on acidification of soil. Um, that's been one of the, the people kind of talk about that. And obviously that would be the way to do it. If you could, the issue with um, the majority of your soils, they have like what we call a high buffering capacity or essentially a re high resistance to change. So the amount of carbonates and um, that are in the soil and many of these that are affected by IDC make it such that you can try to put elemental sulfur on at a high rate and you might get um, a small drop in your pH, but uh, give it a couple of years, according to some of the data that AgVice had. And um, they were looking at, I can't remember what the rate was, it was just ridiculously high. Elemental sulfur uh, went down maybe you know, 0.2, 0.3, uh, the pH dropped by, the, by that much, but then it was back up within about two, three years to what the original level is. So that's kind of the main issue there is, um, you know, that would be the permanent solution if you could do it. It's just not going to be cost feasible. I mean, you might as well look at one of these other options because it's going to take a lot of time to do it. These soils are just too well buffered that um, they're going to resist change and you're not going to see much benefit of some of that. But that would really be about the only way to do it is to try to get rid of some of the carbonates leach some of it out of there. Um, but you know, we, we still see even with tile drainage in some of these fields, we still have the problem. So I don't think you're really gonna necessarily get rid of it. It's just gonna be trying to manage it as best you can is, is really the best thing you can do. Yeah, I wanted to jump in on the tile thing. I think there's a, there's, you know, I think farmers really like to tile um, and they like to justify that. And so there's a lot of discussion around putting in tile for this reason. Um, and it seems like the most obvious one, but I think, as you heard the, the complicating factors at the beginning of this discussion, it's, it's, I, I haven't seen really good examples um, where tile has really done what, what we hoped it would do. So um, uh, I think we have to be a little bit cautious about it as a, the panacea to, to solve the problem, but theory and theoretically it should, should certainly help a lot, especially in these saltier soils it, it, with with plenty of rainfall to wash some of that, that through the soil profile. So something that um, is particularly evident this year is you can really pick out um, wheel tracks from our uh, sprayers that have gone through our fields where it's very striking to see these deep green soybeans, right? Where those wheel tracks were in a sea of, of IDC yellow soybeans. Can you comment on that? So a lot of the theory behind that, uh, if you look at uh, some of the work that's been done, just looking at sampling, taking soil samples in and out of the wheel tracks, isn't it's that it's a nitrate effect. So you've got compacted soils that um, they're going to be more prone to denitrification. That would that would get rid of some of that nitrate. Um, that that's potentially what could be um, creating that greening effect. So essentially you've got less nitrate there, less being taken up, so the IDC should be less. 
So it's predominantly what we see. I mean, I've seen kind of the opposite occur at some point in time, but um, you know, just looking at some of the previous data collected in Minnesota, that's kind of the thing that they were showing as a difference in in the, the nitrate values. Really, nothing else was was different between the in and out of the wheel tracks. So, if you think about it with compaction, you're um, decreasing the porosity, which would increase essentially the saturation, which would lead to more denitrification. So it makes sense from that standpoint, but um, that's usually the prevailing. A lot of that, if you look at it, sprayers are also, um, what we tend to see more is that secondary tillage passes. You see those nice angles going across the field um, from the wheel track. So again, a lot of that just kind of um, what they've indicated from some of the research has been that it's um, just reduction in nitrate within those zones that um, reduces the impact of IDC. And so just reemphasize, I mean, we're talking about a, a very small zone within the soil that happens to coincide with where the roots are at that time of year. And I think everything kind of comes together to create these green real wheel tracks, you know, and so we just have to be careful with how we use that information. There's farmers that say, oh, well, then I'll just go roll my soybeans. Well, rolling, you know, gives us a compaction layer, you know, that's that's very, very shallow completely different location within the soil is not going to have any effect. So, in uh, a very different time. Um, so I think uh, we just have to be careful with how we, how we interpret those kind of things and know that this isn't really, it helps us understand the biology and the chemistry a little bit, but it doesn't help us um, deal with the real issue for us uh, from a management standpoint. Angie, question for you. Northwestern Minnesota, how widespread is IDC that you're seeing up there? Um, I know for a lot of our other listeners across other parts of the state, just might be curious what you see up in your neck of the woods. Sure, so um, like um, Seth and Dan were talking about, we have um, very poorly drained soils up here. Um, and uh, not, not last week, but the week before IDC came on strong. So you can see, uh, those folks that um, might have had a, a little bit uh, better IDC tolerance in their variety um, variety that they selected for a field. You can also see those people that probably in addition to that might have put on an iron chelate, but by and large, most of the soybeans um, cross fields are, are suffering right now. Yeah. Another interesting anecdote. Um, I talked to a farmer last week in South Central Minnesota that's in this zone right where we kind of transition from acid to uh, high pH soils, and and uh, he has almost every one of his farms has a little bit of IDC and a little bit of area where they have um, white mold shows up. So these are things that I tend to think are kind of mutually exclusive, and we don't tend to see these in the same um, areas. But it, it reminds us that we see a lot going on, even spatially within the same field um, in some areas. And so this is a farmer that has to really deal very carefully with populations in their, uh, in their farms. And they're actually trying to map um, and, and really reduce populations where they have tendencies for IDC or for white mold and then push populations higher in those IDC areas. And so they have to be very, very careful to so that they can they can manage these things within the same fields and then of course the variety selection is a huge problem because um you know those 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 issues have been kind of selected for separately as well so um it it's not just a, a 
looking at this on a huge scale, but it could actually be a problem on a, on a very small geographic scale too. Angie, any last questions before we head out here? The only um, last question I had, I know that um, Seth, a couple years ago, you had a graduate student that was working on looking at the interactions um, between IDC and SCN. So if you could comment on that. Yeah, our, our original question was, you know, these are two problems that tend to show up a lot on high pH soils, and um, they both tend to cause soybeans to get a little bit yellow and stunted. So we are wondering if there's really any interactions. Is one making the other one a lot worse? Um, and the, the short story is really that we don't find that they don't, there isn't a real uh, interaction. So each of these problems seems to be independent of each other, except the one interesting thing that we found was that SCN still reproduces at a very high rate, even on sick, ugly, stunted yellow soybeans. Um, so this could be part of our problem is that where we do have IDC and we have really poor looking soybeans, we can still support high levels of reproduction. Uh, it's it's not what we usually expect when we think about of you know kind of this parasitic relationship is you'd think that a um, a unhealthy soybean wouldn't support uh, I, uh, SCN reproduction, uh, but it, the SCN is probably taking advantage of the fact that the soybeans kind of stunted and, and unhealthy and actually reproducing at high levels on it. And it could actually be why we have such a large population show up in, in um, Western Minnesota and high pH soils too. It could, could lead to some of these very high populations. So in effect, we're, we're causing ourselves a worse problem. So the only management thing I would suggest is for farmers that have small areas of fields that they just cannot grow a decent soybean crop on, maybe they should stay out of those with soybeans. They're not, they're not doing themselves any favor by, by planting a soybean and only being able to harvest 20, 20 bushels out there. Well, thank you, Seth and Dan, for uh, joining us today and uh, covering iron deficiency chlorosis. And thank you, Angie, too, for uh, kind of emceeing and uh, walking through kind of what's going on in northwestern Minnesota. And again, thank you for everyone who attended as well. This is Strategic Farming Field Notes. And if you, uh, when you do close out, remember there's that very short four-question survey that helps us know just how we're doing. Uh, what we can improve, and also what we might be looking at for future sessions as well for potential topics. And with that, I would like to thank our sponsors, Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council, as well as the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. Next week's session will be July 13th at 8 a.m. Uh, it sounds like we'll be covering corn pollination at least, as well as other topics we're still looking at. And with that, thank you, and have a great rest of your day, everyone.